All right. Thank you for your patience. Little technical difficulties, but we're good to go. So, St. Therese's other namesake, does anybody know what it is? Want to take a guess? Her other um, title that she took in Carmel. So the first one was St. Therese of the Child Jesus and the Holy Face. Yes. The Holy Face was her second uh, title in Carmel. So we have the, a picture of our Lord's face uh, of the shroud. St. Therese had a very special devotion to the Holy Face. Her community had a special devotion to the Holy Face as well. And there was a statue of Veronica's Bale in their monastery. And the sisters spent a lot of time meditating on our Lord's passion, his suffering and pain, especially revealed through his face. And so she felt very inspired and moved to take this title uh, as her own. And so when Sister was talking about um, her father becoming so ill and how hard that was for Therese, I remember reading about that when I was in Carmel. And I could imagine, you know, how painful that was for her to have a very good father and to see him suffering like that. You know, life just doesn't seem to be fair sometimes. And so I thought about St. Therese and about how much pain she had in her family and with her father. And we all go through our own experiences of pain, of trauma, of abandonment, you know, in one degree or another. And so what I've seen reflecting on all of this all my life is that God's face haunts many of us for different reasons. Um, we're wounded by his face. And so I just want to share with you a little bit about that. Many of us have seen God's face being used for evil and not for good, especially in the last couple of decades in the Catholic Church. You know who I'm talking about. And my father was one of those individuals who abused God's face and the face of the Catholic Church. My dad grew his beard and hair to resemble Christ as much as he possibly could. Imagine the pain and the horror of being abused by someone with Christ's face. It felt like God himself was abusing me. And I know that that's how the children feel who are abused by priests or anybody who represents God or the church. And it's a wound that's very, very difficult to bear and even harder to heal, but I, it is possible. It's very painful, it's, it's very deep. There are many like my father who have used their positions of power and authority and trust in families, in the community, in schools, in the church, to wound the weak, all in God's name. It, it's really an outrage and a, and a, and a tra tragedy, honestly. I mean, we all feel it, the pain of it. It's a wound that no one should ever have to bear, especially a child. So we as believers, as a community, meeting here today, everyone here, what, what are we going to do about this? Do we just sit back and settle for this version of God's face? 
this version of the church's face. So I remember as a teenager, like a sister pointed out, God has an amazing sense of sending us the right people, the right words, the right day, at the right time. And when I was a teenager, I don't know how this happened, but my father had pulled me out of school after school after school as teachers were finding out something was wrong at home. They were questioning. They wanted to talk to us. And he'd pull us out. I'd never see teachers, friends, no one again. In a day, I'd be gone. And this happened many times. And I finally ended up at some random Catholic homeschool group. And there just so happened to be a Catholic dean of some big university in America whose grandson was troubled and needed help, so he was living with him. And he was so troubled he couldn't go to regular school, so he had a homeschool. So this dean from this prestigious college, I'm sorry I forgot what it was. No, I, sh I should remember those things. But uh, he, was a, he had a doctorate in philosophy and theology and psychology. I mean, the man was a genius. And he became a religion professor for a tiny little homeschool group of all like 20 kids. And I, I was one of the high schoolers at the time who took his class and he sat down and taught us the entire catechism of the Catholic Church and the entire encyclical Veritati Splendor. <laughs> so, I mean, talk about receiving a gift at the right time. So, in Veritati Splendor, very simply, Pope John Paul II talked about objective truth and objective beauty and objective good. That there are ob objective truths in the world that no matter what anybody says or does, it's true. So he talked about intrinsic good and intrinsic evil. And any sexual acts done to a child are intrinsic evils. And it was, it was his encyclical that pointed out to me that there was a possibility that my dad was wrong. Very, very, very wrong. So the more I read the encyclical, the more I prayed, John Paul II's words really opened a door for me to realize I did not have to settle for God's face to be the face of my father. And so I, I did everything I could to learn about who God really was. Because now I knew that something was off. I didn't know to what extent. You know, I, I would have been horrified if I really understood how bad it was. But I really pursued finding God's face as he truly was. One of my favorite quotes from John Paul II is, do not be satisfied with mediocrity. I did not want to be satisfied with a false image of God. I had too much to lose. So, <laughs> the Carmelite saints also are not satisfied with mediocrity. They are not satisfied with false images. And St. John of the Cross went so far as to say, I will sit in silence and darkness before I ever settle for something that's not true, that's not real. And that's the beauty of, of the Carmelite way, is that we do not have to settle for any falsehood in our faith, in our homes, in our life. We can pursue the good, the true, and the beautiful to the fullest extent possible and beyond. So what do we do 
if we've been physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually wounded by false images of God, what do we do? There's something very unexpected that I also ran into from my uh, reading of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, studying the writings of Pope John Paul II. So as I was being abused, as I was living through hell, I was pouring over encyclicals on human suffering, on the dignity of women. I mean, John Paul II was incredible. And I was reading St. Therese and the Carmelite Saints, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and I found something. I found that God has a living memory. The Holy Spirit is God's living memory. And God's living memory contains God's full memory of me, of who I am, how he created me, and how I will be in eternity. I have no idea. I can't even comprehend, especially being so broken. So I trusted in God's living memory, and I asked him. And I said, can I go what you think about me instead of what I think about me? Can I, can I believe what you remember about me instead of what my father has told me I am? And th those were my prayers. It's simple. But the whole church contains God's living memory. The mass, the sacraments, the prayers, scripture. I mean, it's all there. And, and I started to see myself in a different way. I started to find who I really was. And also, I just want to share with you that I, I do write about the memories of God, the memories of the church, in the Spiritual Journey of Healing on my website. You can download it for free. You can find it in the catechism. It's absolutely beautiful. But I'd like to share with you, in the spirit of Carmel, in the spirit of Elijah, you'll figure out why in a minute, in the spirit of Pope John Paul II, who loved Carmel and was so drawn to it, he wanted to be a Carmelite himself, in the spirit of St. Therese, in her little way, I want to I take you somewhere. I want to show you something that maybe, maybe we would miss without this, this insight, this living memory that God has given us in the church. The Holy Spirit has led me not only through the abuse, but through many incredibly awful, strange, unthinkable circumstances and I really feel it's for everyone else. I didn't feel like I needed the extra. I felt I had enough with my childhood. I, everything else that happened, I'm like, I don't think this was for me. Maybe it's to convince someone else. I don't know. Maybe it's for some of you here today because I felt like I didn't need it. <laughs> At least, you know, that's my feeling. I, I trust God and, and how he sees everything. But for example... Uh, I told you I have six kids. As my pregnancies continued, they got more and more complicated. And with my fifth pregnancy, around 36 weeks, I was rushed to the hospital because I was having symptoms of a heart attack. Turns out I had several deep vein thrombosis, and I had a pulmonary embolism that nearly killed me. The doctors put me on blood thinners, and I was on bed rest. And in my hospital bed, I contracted the flu 
because everybody was sick in the hospital. And I was in a room next to a woman who was on a ventilator. And I prayed for her, but her ventilator kept me up 24 hours. So I didn't get any sleep. And, you know, I'm, I'm just bewildered. You know, I'm not asking God. I'm not complaining. You know, once you've lived through enough, you just stop complaining. Just like, I don't have time for that. Not that I'm perfect. I just don't have time. It's just like, I'm not going to waste my time with that. It's boring. I'll move to the next slide. But I, I, you know, I was like, really? I mean, this seems a bit much. Like, I couldn't have a quiet room or maybe not the flu. I could go without the pulmonary embolism. <laughs> but as terrified as I was, you know, thinking I might die, you know, I, it was awful. Through my experience, through the help of the Carmelite tradition, through the help of what I knew, God's living memory, and I begged him and I asked him, what do you see? And I found, he, he, you know, I, I, I felt him tell me, I'm not in the blood clots or your pulmonary embolism. I'm not in the ventilator in the room or your flu. He was in the small, tiny, beautiful face of my newborn child who was born healthy and happy. She had a knot in her umbilical cord. The nurses were gasping when they pulled her out. How is she alive? That knot was so tight. She's four years old today. Beautiful, beautiful girl. But God was not in all the chaos. He was in the beauty that came out of it. The Holy Spirit has also helped me see and live through natural disasters. When we were living overseas the first time, when my husband was stationed overseas, I remember on September, ah, I'm trying to remember what day it was now, September 13th, 2013, I was looking on the news uh, back home in the States, in New Mexico, and I saw my house surrounded by a flood. That was pretty awful. So from Germany, I'm making phone calls, and I'm like, what is going on? Oh, it turns out there was a flash flood. Took out the bridge behind my house and surrounded my house and wrecked it. And, and I was like, and my, our house was the only one. You know, it wasn't anybody else's house. It was just ours. I was like, really? Really? I didn't need that. I believe. Like, God, you know I believe. Why? Why did, why? Why is this happening? So, we fixed up the house. We paid contractors. I made tons of phone calls. Took care of it. Good army wife. Made things happen. Fixed up the house, and, and, and everything was okay. And I asked, you know, the Holy Spirit, where, you know, I want to know, what, do you, what did you see in all of this? My face was not in the flood. But he was there in my heart's deepest longing. He was there in those moments as we were reconstructing our house. He was, he's there in the sale of our home that just happened over this past Christmas. It took us that long to sell it, but we finally sold it. So... It was the, the small, little, tiny voice of God that pulled us through. 
the Holy Spirit has also helped me through devastations of terrorism, believe it or not. Back in 2014, we woke up around 3 o'clock in the morning in our little Bavarian village to the smell of smoke. And my husband thought, oh, maybe we left something on. He went through the house, tried to figure out what was going on. A few minutes later, he was calling my name. Gary, Gary, there's a fire. I bolted awake, ran downstairs. Lo and behold, our car in our garage was just blazing on fire. My husband and I rushed back in the house. We had four kids at the time. Started grabbing kids like sacks of potatoes, running out the door. One of our kids was missing. As we were rushing past the garage, our neighbors are calling out, the gas tank's going to explode, run. You know, it was just horrifying. And by then, our whole garage was up in flames, a two-story building. Um, and you can't, I mean, I, I was just in, traumatized, just in shock that all this was happening. In the back of my head, I'm like, you know, maybe it was uh, an electrical failure of the van. You're already trying to, like, figure out what's going on. And, and so I run over to Monica's house, and she's here today. She remembers the fire. Knocked on her door since it was Germany. It's like, I don't remember. What's the number to 911? <laughs> it's not 911. <laughs> so she's like, I'll call the police. Her husband called the, the, the fire trucks. They came rushing over. They started putting out the fire. The whole garage had burned to the ground. And I remember when a detective came up and told Monica's husband, who translated it over to us, that it was not an, an electrical issue, that they believed that a terrorist had also lit our van on fire because there were three other American vehicles burned that night in that village, which is way worse than anything that I could have handled at the moment. I could have handled an electrical issue, you know, because being targeted like that, though, with your kids and, and my heart sank, my husband's heart sank. It was like five in the morning. We, were, we had no sleep. And we looked at each other and we're like, today's Sunday. What are we going to do? And I said, we're going to go to church because it's Sunday. You know, we, can, we have to go. And so we, a friend came and picked us up in their minivan. And we went to church in our smoke-tinged clothes, stood on our faces. <laughs> and we sat in the back. And we, we real, you know, we were there. It, it's not that we were devastated. We weren't devastated. We were devastated, traumatized, you know, shocked. You know, we couldn't believe what was going on. We not only lost our van that day, but all the things that were in our garage and the attic above it, including our Christmas ornaments, our wedding mementos, our camping gear, bikes, sporting goods, and nearly half our possessions. But God was not in the terrorism or the billowing flames of fire. And I asked God, the Holy Spirit, I said, what do you see, you know, in all of this? You have a larger memory than I do of this. What do you see? We sifted and sorted through the charred remains of our belongings a week later. Our nativity set was scorched. Mary was badly burned. Baby Jesus was completely melted. But that wasn't what God's true face looked like. 
He was within us as we collected the Christmas ornaments that were still intact. As my husband and I embraced and hugged, and as I put my singed wedding tiara back on my head and, and took a triumphant picture with my husband, <laughs> I'm wearing this anyways. And we found God through the fire because he was, he, he was there with us and we were able to keep our faith intact. He, he was burned just as badly as we were, you know, but we were there for each other. We, we kept pushing through. God was in that still, tiny little voice that child, you know, that, that presence that is so small that we often so times miss, the Eucharist, you know, the sacraments, he's here. He's always been here. The Holy Spirit has also led me through the deadly shootings in El Paso, Texas, just last August. We were stationed at Fort Bliss for three years. It was August 3rd, my son's birthday. It's our family tradition that I take the birthday kid to Walmart to pick out a toy for their, on the morning of their birthday since I have no family on my, you know, I have no family to help me with that. So I, I take care of it. I take, usually my husband's working hard as a soldier. So I take the birthday kid to Walmart, have them pick out their toy, and then we have a birthday party for them. But for some strange reason, my son, John Paul, begged me to take him to Walmart two days earlier. It was a Thursday. I was angry with him, and I scolded him in the car, but I took him anyways. Then on Saturday morning, when we would have been at Walmart, we were on the way to my son's birthday party, and my heart sank deep into my chest as I watched every single police car, fire truck, and ambulance in El Paso rush past me on the road. I called my husband frantically on the phone, and I asked to find out what was happening. A little while later, I found out when we arrived at the kids' trampoline park that we went to. It was all over the te televisions. I heard the news report on the, uh, on the radio as I was driving, and then also as we showed up at that trampoline park, that an active shooter had opened fire at the Walmart we had just been at, it was just two miles down the street from our house, and he had killed many people. I, I can't begin to tell you how awful the feeling was of wondering who was there, who, who was being injured, that I had just been in that exact Walmart of not even 48 hours before, buying Legos for my son. So we went home immediately and began calling everyone we knew, all our friends, everybody in El Paso shopped there. All the military wives, all the, all the locals, everybody shopped there. But I didn't have everyone's phone number, so we had to wait. My family and I watched the news and prayed that it wasn't going to be our friends or any of my kids' friends from school, anyone we knew. We waited and waited for 12, then 24, then 36, then 48 hours, I felt like forever before we were going to find out who it was. 
Right after the shootings, my children's school became the reunification center for all the shoppers who had been separated from loved ones during the shooting. My kids' principal, counselors, teachers, and staff became the refuge of the survivors. After nearly two days, the victims' names were slowly released to those who were scared and traumatized, those family members who were still left in the school waiting to hear about their loved ones. It was in my children's school that they found out that it was their daughter who was killed, their mother, their father, their brother, their, their child. A masked gunman shot and killed 22 innocent people that day and injured 24 more, all out of anger, rage, prejudice, and hate. But God was not in that masked shooter. He was not in the bullets or the anger or the hate. My family and I and the whole El Paso community found God was in the faces of the people of El Paso, men and women of great faith. I feel we can all learn something from them. I'm sure, I'm sure the whole world can, honestly. I've never seen a community come together like that before. We all prayed, we all cried, we all supported one another. The churches were not empty that next Sunday. People kept a space open for God. They really did, it was remarkable. Even in the midst of that tragedy. My son, John Paul and I, a few days later went to Ponder Park and we prayed for all the victims for their families and for our community. We prayed for healing, for peace, and for understanding. The Holy Spirit has also led me through the deepest wound I have ever borne in my life, which is the abuses of my father and the neglect of my mother. My father who bore Christ's face, this was the most scarring thing for me to have my father look like, like Christ crucified. His blood, his face was bloodied and marred during the passion plays at our parish, but with fake blood and with fake wounds. These were false images of God. My father during the passion play wore a crown of thorns, but they were not pressed into his head. When he carried that wooden cross through the church, he wasn't carrying it up to Calvary. My father may have looked like Christ, but when he turned around and, and went back home and violently abused me, an innocent child, God was not in his face. He was not in my father. I, found, I was able to find God's face somewhere very unexpected again. I found another great surprise in God's living memory, even through all the wounds that I've, that I've borne, all the things that I've been through. God's living memory has shown me that I should keep seeking his face. My whole life I've been seeking God's face through every wound, every trauma, everything that I've been through. And I'm also an artist. I hope some of you were able to pick up some of my cards in the back. So even as a child, I've been trying to paint God's face. 
I've painted Christ's face on canvas, on marble, on paper, on my sidewalk, on eggshells, anything you can think of, anything, you name it. I've tried to paint his face on it, literally. Sometimes I've left his face empty, and sometimes I've painted every crease and every line. I painted Christ as a newborn child, as a young boy, as a man crucified, as our risen Savior. Yet in every single painting, I was never able to manage to paint away my pain or the memories, my memories of my father and the years of abuse. He was always there staring back at me. There was nothing I could do. But I didn't give up. I just needed the right art form. It wasn't watercolors, it wasn't paint. I needed something stronger than paints and paper or whatever it was I was trying to paint on. I found out I needed my humanity. As a wife and as a mother, I painted God's face with my motherhood. My children's faces are innocent and happy and creative. You bet they, buy, they resemble my father. That's just how genetics works. But as my children have grown, so have my memories and my experiences of this face. And these memories have been transforming. With my six children bearing my father's face, they've created more good memories with this face than all the bad. I've seen utter joy light up in my children's eyes, their faces filled with wonder, surprise, trust. I've seen sorrow and pain as they cry, and I've been there to comfort them and protect them. I've seen a million funny and emotional expressions, enough to fill a lifetime with all the innocence all the creativity, all the love, and all the beauty that has been lacking in me for so long. Slowly but surely, God's face is being reconstructed in my heart. Piece by piece, day by day, grace by grace. My children are helping me reclaim Christ's face for my own. And little by little, I'm also reclaiming God's fatherhood, my husband's fatherhood, my marriage, my love, my family, my sexuality, my motherhood, and my Catholic faith. And so as we face this, this tragedy of clergy abuse in the Catholic Church today and wherever child abuse is present, I feel the Holy Spirit can lead us to God's true face through it all. He is not in the abusive faces of clergy and laity alike. He is not in the things that harm us, wound us, break us down to nothing. God is in the still, small voice of our faith, of our people, of our church, raising their voices up to heaven. 
it will certainly take time to heal and to grow new memories of God's face in the Catholic Church. But it is coming, and it will come. If each one of us keep a space open for Christ, if we keep a little door open for our faith, then we will begin to see the millions of new expressions on God's face, expressions of healing, of hope, and of joy.